good to be in the house of the Lord, isn't it? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this gathering of your saints, your people. We are an unworthy people, but you have poured out grace upon grace in Jesus Christ. And we have come because we love your word. We've become, we've come because we love your son. And we have come because we realize we are dependent upon your spirit on all issues of life, including the issue of money. And so, Lord, today, as we finish, by your grace, the final section of Paul's letter to Timothy, I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us. As Charlie said a little while ago, Father, may your spirit have sway over us so that we would be changed in practical and in spiritual ways. And so we thank you for this time together. And now, Father, I pray that you would fill us with your truth and protect us from error. And may we remember those things that you, O Father, put into our hearts. And may we forget anything that is unworthy of you this morning. Thank you for this time, we pray, in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Amen. We are in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Beginning with verse 17, this morning I want to talk to you about money. I want to talk to you about money. Now, nobody leave, okay? So one time I got up and we were having a fundraiser here because we wanted to build this fellowship hall. And uh, I hadn't spoken about money in years. This was the one day. And I said, we're going to talk about money this morning. And this, there was a visitor who said, see, honey, I told you, all they'd ever talk about is money. And they got up and walked out. So nobody leave. Nobody leave. It's not going to be that kind of message. If you've been here for any number of years, you know that preaching about money is a rarity for us, to say the least. We talk about money when it's time to announce the new budget, when it's time to update our financial records and put them on the back table. Uh, We talk about money when there's some major thing going on that requires some financial attention. Aside from that, The only time we talk about money is when we happen to be in a passage of Scripture that talks about money. And because we preach expositionally, that is verse by verse by verse, one verse at a time, we're just going to run into this topic. And we need to run into this topic because like every other area of our life, it is important. And money, money is extremely important important in our lives in terms of how we think about it and how we use it. Uh, God has given it to us for purposes, and there are certain dangers that we need to be aware of. Actually, as we push back and consider Paul's letter to Timothy as a whole, we observe that there are a number of times when, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul has, in this letter, either spoken directly about or alluded to the issue of money. For example, if you flip to the left here, if you're in 1 Timothy 6, you can flip back to chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 3, is where he's giving the ground-level basic uh, character qualities of a man who aspires to the office of elder. And one of those qualifications is he must not be a lover of money. In that same text, verse 8, where he's talking about deacons, he says they should not pursue dishonest gain. Another statement about money. Chapter 5, 
Verse 8, an individual who does not provide financially for his family, his, especially widows, that's the context there, he's worse than an unbeliever. So spending your money to support other family members is important to God. And chapter 5, verse 18, Paul says, a laborer is worthy of his wages. Just like in the Old Testament law, it said that an ox ought to be unmuzzled while he's treading out the grain, therefore pay your pastor. Uh, Chapter, (laughs) interesting providence of God that he would connect those two. Uh, Chapter 6, verse 5, the false teachers used counterfeit godliness as a means of financial gain. But in doing so, they have denied the faith. In this section that we're in today, in chapter 6, Paul was instructing Timothy about money among the godless. Excuse me, the passage that I just mentioned in in chapter uh, 6, verse 5. He's talking about money among the godless, how they misuse money. Here in our text for this morning, he's writing to Timothy about money among the godly. There are godly people in the church who have money. In fact, if you drove a car here today and you ate something from a grocery store, you probably have money too. If you were breathing in and out and you live in America, you probably have money. Um, There are true saints, true saints of God that the Lord has bestowed money upon. Now, money is not the only thing Paul wants to talk to Timothy about and to us here in the latter end of this letter, but it is the main thing. At least it's the main thing in the sense that he spends the most time on it, and then he hits something really important at the end as a concluding note in this letter. So there are actually two main topics that he's dealing with. The first is instruction to the rich about money, and the second one is a final exhortation about the gospel, and I believe you have the notes in your bulletin. So let's take a minute to read through the text, and in honor of God's word, shall we stand? And let's read this together. 1 Timothy 6, verses 17 through 21. 1 Timothy 6, verses 17 through 21. As for the rich in this present age, charge them, that is, command them, not to be haughty, nor to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. And you can be seated. Just some observations before we begin in earnest here. First, there is nothing in Paul's teaching, anywhere in Paul's teaching, in his 13 books that denounces the wealthy. Today, many in our culture hate the rich. Uh, To them, the problem in this world is a lack of financial equality, and the rich need to be forced to share their wealth with those who are less fortunate. This is emphatically not 
Paul's command or concern, nor is it consistent with sound biblical teaching. It is neither sinful to be rich, nor is it godly to be poor. It is not sinful to be poor, and it is not godly to be rich. Depending on the culture, we can confuse those. Witness Job's friends. God has taken everything away from you. You must be ungodly. And that wasn't the case at all. Sin and righteousness are always matter of the the heart. That's right. It is neither sinful to be rich nor godly to be poor. The Christian ethic is not that riches and wealth are sin, but that they are a great responsibility. The stewardship from God. The scripture's clear and repeated teaching is that God gives people the power to get wealth. If you have wealth, God gave it to you. If you have a bank account, it is by God's providential care and concern for you that you have that money. If you have a lot, it is what God has allotted to you. If you have a little, it is what God has allotted to you. And we do believe in the providence of God, do we not? We do believe that God is sovereign over all things and that if there is one maverick molecule in the universe, God is not sovereign. Therefore, whatever is in your bank account now, today, or not there today, is because God loves you. And he has a plan for you. Um, You remember in the Old Testament, 1 Samuel 2, verse 7, Hannah was praising God, giving him thanks for her her miracle son. It would turn out to be more of a miracle, and more than a miracle, he would would be a great prophet. When Hannah was thanking and, and praying to the Lord, she says this, I think inspired by the Holy Spirit, the Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. Again, in Proverbs 22, verse 2, we read, The rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is maker of them both. And so we need to be careful. We need to be careful not to develop an economic ethic that doesn't match God's word. It is neither sinful to be rich nor godly to be poor because sin and righteousness are always a matter of the heart. And God makes sinful people rich And he makes righteous people rich. And he makes sinful people poor. And he makes righteous people poor. Second, we need to remember that whether one is materially rich or materially poor, each can be rich in the things that matter most to God. You can be rich in Christ. No matter what your bank account says. No matter how many credit cards you have maxed out. You may need to do some repenting on that, but it doesn't mean you can't be rich toward God. You can. All of us can be rich in Christ and therefore content in what God has given us. That's why Paul, that's what he he was getting at in chapter 6, verse 6, when he wrote this, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, we can take nothing out of it, but if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. I think you can infer here, if we have food, clothing, and Jesus, that's all we need. I've met those people, some of them, and they they really, to me, seem 
content. And their contentment, they would tell you, comes from Christ. Access to the throne of grace cannot be purchased by money. There have been religious traditions and are religious traditions, major religious traditions today that would say otherwise. You can't purchase access to the throne of grace with money. It was purchased for you when, by his grace, God sent his son to be the propitiation for your sins. That debt was paid. Your access to God was paid for by the blood of Christ so that we all can fellowship with the Father regardless of how much money we have or don't have. If you are rich, you should focus on being godly. And if you are poor, you should focus on being godly. And if you are middle class, you should focus on being godly. If you're brilliant, you should focus on being godly. If you're dumb, you should focus on being godly. If you're beautiful, be godly and beautiful. If you're not as beautiful, <laughs> I didn't say that word. <laughs> be godly and whatever that is. You have mutual access to the throne, regardless of your economic state, whether you're rich or poor, slave or free, Jew or Gentile. Paul's concern in this text, however, is about members in the church of Ephesus who have money. He's not speaking to the poor here. Jesus encourages the poor elsewhere. So does the Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul knew what it was like to be rich. He knew what it was like to be poor. He knows those things. Maybe you do too. You know what it's like to be poor. Most of us do. Um, you know what it's like, at least for short seasons, to, to really enjoy life. And it just seems... Either because people were blessing you or you go on a great vacation or you won something and you, man, it just feels like you're rich. We know what that's like. Paul's concern, however, is for those in the church who are consistently rich. So instructions to the rich. And I only, <laughs> I only have 30 points here and that, <laughs> that we'll work through. Um, Ephesus, you need to understand, it was a very wealthy city. One of the seven wonders of the world was there, the Temple of Artemis. Uh, it was a big tourist attraction for all kinds of moral and primarily immoral reasons. But there were many people in that city who were rich, and some of them were believers who would become rich in a manner that was honoring to God. In fact, even in our day, God blesses many churches with godly people who have money. And praise God for that. I, I am fairly closely tied with a number of churches just because I'm friends with their pastor and we do things together. And the consistent refrain among each of them is uh, most of the money, or at least a, a, a disproportionate percentage of the money is given by a very few people. And some people don't give anything. And most people give what they believe is honoring to the Lord and it, 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 it's not a lot, but there are a few who really give a lot. And that's just the way it is. And, and you know what? That's okay. Uh, you are not as rich as other people in this church. And some of you are not as poor as others. In this passage, Paul lays down four exhortations for those who have money. 
Two negatives and two positive. Two dangers and two duties related to wealth. The two dangers have to do with a person's attitude. The two duties have to do with their actions. So let's begin by talking about the dangers Paul lists. In verse 17, Paul writes, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. Now the rich here are often referred to, uh, the word here often refers to people who were wealthy enough that they no longer had to work for a living. Either they were, it was old money that they were born into, or whether they, they were successful in business and um, they, don't have to, they don't have to work anymore. Maybe they're retired. I don't know. Um, but these folks had money. Now, it, it's important for us, however, to define our term rich. And so, as has been the case all the way through our study of 1 Timothy, I really want you to see what I think Paul wants you to see, and that is this text speaks to you. There may be a person or two right now that you have in your mind who are a part of this church who have money. Stop thinking about them. Here's the definition of rich. If you have more than you need, you're rich. How many of you have more than you need? Well, I know it's not everybody, but a couple of weeks ago I asked how many of you were alive and I, and I got less of a response than that. <laughs> so let me just tell you, all of you have more than you need. You're all rich. I'm rich. I'm rich. Do I have bills? Yeah. But I'm rich. Again, just, just go to a third world country. Go to Haiti. Go to Tajikistan. You know, go to Ukraine, especially over in the war-torn area. And you see people who have houses that got bullet holes all through them. And, and yet they have sometimes more than what they need. And they would say, Pastor, I am rich. I am rich. Um, they're, they're not as rich as you. Take the poorest person in Fort Worth and they're probably richer than many around the world. If you have more than you need, then you are by definition rich. And many are richer than other rich people around them. And some of us are not as rich as other people around us, but we're all rich. So if you're listening to my voice right now this morning and you have more than you need, listen up. If you have more than you need, this message is for you. First danger. First danger Paul is concerned about is a false sense of superiority. It's an attitude of sinful pride. The word translated haughty here means to be high-minded. It might be called the pride of purse. You got more in your purse than you think someone else has in theirs. And Paul understands that money can tempt people to look down on other people that they think don't have as much money. And perhaps they're right that they don't have as much money. When around people who are not as sophisticated and successful, it can be tempting to look down your nose on someone else. And that's not right. You can stand aloof. You can give less care. They keep a distance. The lie is that the greater the wealth, greater wealth indicates greater worth. And that's never true in God's eyes. Man looks on the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. Sin and righteousness are always matters of the heart. 
James knew about this tendency in the local church. He warned his church about the attitude of having the pride of purse or having a haughty mind when it comes to thinking about the poor. In James 2, verses 1 through 6, listen to what James says. My brother, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, that is, into the church, and a poor and shabby clothed man also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, sit here in a good place, but then you say to the poor man, <clears throat> why don't you stand over there in the back? Sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? You haven't done that this morning, have you? You haven't seen a person uh, or people come in and thought, number one, I don't know who they are. I don't want to talk to them. Or, oh, they, that person looks poor. I don't want to talk to them. They might, I mean, they might start dropping hints or something. I don't know. Really? You didn't think that, did you? Listen, my beloved. He says, Listen, my beloved brother, James says, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs in the kingdom? And didn't Paul say that in 1 Corinthians? It's not many mighty, not many noble. Inference there, rich. Consider your calling, brethren, not many mighty, not many many noble, Not many powerful, not many sophisticated. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong. God has chosen the broken things, the things that are not, so that he might nullify the things that are. Has not, James says, God chosen those who are poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? One of the dangers of having a lot of money is that you will love money. And not having money causes you to be dependent on God. That's why there's not many noble. There are only a few. There are many who have little who trust in Christ because they've got nothing else to trust in. But you, he says, you dishonor the poor man. This is precisely the attitude Paul was concerned about. Being rich is all well and good, but don't let it go to your head. Pride will never take you anywhere good in the kingdom of God. Haltiness will never take you anywhere good in the kingdom of God. Those who would be first must be last. So don't be haughty. Don't stand aloof. Don't don't just engage with those who apparently have a a lot in life that's a a higher standing than yours or equal standing, someone you can get something from, but rather socialize with those who are of lower standing on the economic ladder. Love them, fellowship with them, pray with them, serve them. You who are rich, who's rich? Your answer should be, I am. That's who Paul and James are speaking of. That's danger number one. The first attitude Paul's concerned about is haughtiness or pride. Second, the second danger Paul was concerned about was a false sense of security. 
It's the attitude of misplaced trust. Again, verse 17. Look at verse 17. Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. The uncertainty of riches. So here's the second danger, that you would put your hope in something that is uncertain, namely riches. Money can lead or tempt a person into a false sense of security. It can tempt one to think that they've got life all bagged and tagged. Those who have money can think things like this. Everything's under control. I have plenty to eat. I have a nice house and a nice car. If I have a medical issue, I can pay for it, no problem. I have insurance. If the car gets wrecked, I can replace it. I have insurance. Insurance. Just, just insert the word security. If the house burns down, it can be rebuilt. I have insurance. I'm set. I mean, what more could I possibly need? Of course, the problem with this mindset is that it sets one's hope on wealth and insurance that you obtain by wealth. But wealth makes a a terrible foundation for life because it is so insecure. It's not nearly as secure as it appears. In fact, it tends to fly away unexpectedly and suddenly. Uh, Solomon knew this. In Proverbs 23, verses 4 and 5, he writes this. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist from that. When your eyes light on it, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, and it flies away like an eagle toward heaven. That's Solomon's thought about money. Why why are you seeking to acquire that? It'll be gone. It'll be gone suddenly. It is going to leave you suddenly. It is going to leave you suddenly. If it doesn't leave you suddenly in this life, it will leave you suddenly the moment you die. You came, Paul said, naked and with nothing into this world. You will leave naked and with nothing out of this world. You will lose your money. The only question is when, and you know not when. It may be today. If you want an example of this, just recall what happened in our country in 2008 when the stock market experienced that radical correction, they call it. Between July of 2008 and March of 2009, the U.S. lost $3.4 trillion in real estate wealth. During that same period, the stock market lost $7.4 trillion. Some individuals lost millions of dollars personally. Others lost their entire savings. Some people lost their homes. Retirement plans disappeared. Whole companies and even some banks evaporated. In fact, almost 10 years later, our country has yet to fully recover from that unexpected financial disaster. And it happened virtually in a moment. For a minute here, turn with me to the left, back into the Gospels, and let's just look at Luke chapter 12, shall we? Luke chapter 12. I know this is a lot to read, but I want to start with 
verse 1. Luke 12. In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling on one another, we began to say to the disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and whatever you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friend, do not fear those who kill the body and, and have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why even, why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men shall the Son of God acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be, given, uh, will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogue and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you will defend yourself or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you are to say. All of this is talking about your real security. Your real security is in God. Keep reading. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Right? There, where there's a will, there's a relative. <clears throat> but he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life, listen, one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Let me say it again to all of us Americans. One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I've got nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be happy. But God said to him, You fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Where is your security? That's Paul's concern. In what are you placing your security? You see, beloved, being proud about one's wealth is not only sinful, it's dumb. It's folly. It's stupid. Why? Because it is so uncertain. You can never tell. You can never tell when it might all disappear or when the Lord will take your home unexpectedly or when he'll take your soul unexpectedly. 
Proverbs 11.23, whoever trusts in riches will fall. Whoever trusts in riches will fall. So don't trust in money. Don't set your hope on wealth. It is an insecure and faltering foundation. It, it could be washed away at any moment. I won't take us to the parable of the rich man and the foolish man, but it's that foundation issue. One had a solid foundation and the other didn't when the torrent came. The wise man's house that was built on a solid foundation stood. Don't set your hope on what is temporary. Then where will be your security when it's all gone? Instead of your, setting your hope on the uncertainty of money, set it on the bedrock security of God himself. Again, Luke 12, this time beginning with verse 22. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, to not be anxious about your life as to what you will eat, or your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, how they neither snow, sow nor reap. They have neither storehouses nor barns. You see the connection? The farmer had all the barns, and he was building bigger ones. The ravens had none, and God takes care of them. And yet God feeds them. How much more value are you than the birds? It's the second time he said that. Previously, he was speaking of sparrows. And which of you, by, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? If then you were not able to do a small thing like that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies of the field. The, we would say in Texas, the wildflowers, the blue bonnets, the, the uh, Indian paintbrush. Consider the lilies, how the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. But I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, and nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, fear not, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, he will say in Matthew, and all these things will be added to you. Don't trust in money. Money is no hope. And so these are the two exhortations. Number one, in terms of danger, don't be proud because of your wealth. <clears throat> Number two, don't set your hope on wealth because it is dangerously uncertain. These are the two dangers. And now Paul offers two positive exhortations, two duties. And these are sweet. These are wonderful. Paul offers two positive exhortations, two duties. First, money <clears throat> is meant for your enjoyment. Turn back to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Money is meant for your enjoyment. <clears throat> Paul says, set your hope on God because it is God who richly provides with everything to enjoy. God richly provides you with everything to enjoy it. Now, what's he speaking about? This isn't name it, claim it. This isn't word faith. Just look around at the stuff you have. God's saying, I gave it to you. Enjoy it. Enjoy it. 
Um, the point here is that it's not money that provides you with the best things in life. It's not money that provides you with the best things in life. It is God who provides you with everything that you have and everything that you will have that you will ever enjoy. All of it comes from God. We saw that, right, back in the doxology where we said in verse 15, uh, this is the same chapter, which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign. Blessed means happy, joyful, contented, satisfied. It's not a stingy God. We have no stingy Savior. He loves to give us good gifts. And when he gives us good gifts, he expects us to enjoy them. Okay, so it's Christmas morning. And you're seven years old, and you're unpacking the gifts, and your grandmother gives you a gift, and you open it, and it's a pair of socks or underwear. And you say, hmm. (laughs) Do you say, Grandma, how did you know? Would she have just fallen off her rocking chair and with laughter? I mean, that would have been hysterical. It's over-the-top joy. Or let's play it again, seven years old. Your parents bought you a $1,000 bicycle. And they say, come out to the garage, son. And they unveil it. Here it is. And you say, I wanted the pink one. And yet, that's so often how we respond to God's good gifts. But God, I wanted a bigger one. God, thank you for the check. I was hoping it would be larger. Thank you for the promotion. I thought it came with more perks. Thank you for the children. Thank you. Oh, apparently that needed to be said. (laughs) Children, we're not laughing at you. (laughs) My kids would say, Dad, we're not laughing with you. (laughs) But you know what it's like when, is the giver more honored when you are exuberantly thankful and enjoy what they gave you? Or, Are they more honored by you saying, thank you, Grandma, I'm sure I needed this. There was a brother who, um, I was up at Countryside Bible Church when um, John MacArthur was up there preaching, and uh, he had just come out with his new systematic theology, so it wasn't very long ago, and it was big and thick and expensive, and I didn't even know it was out. I didn't even know it had been printed. And one of the brothers up there who used to be here, dear friend, came to me, and we were just chatting, and he said, by the way, did you hear about this new systematic theology that MacArthur and Mayhew have put out from the Master's Seminary? And I said, no, I think I heard that it was coming. And he said, you don't have one? I said, no. He said, you have one now. And I said, you got to be kidding me. And I left without one, and I got home, 
And the next day, it arrived at my door like a giant paperweight or doorstop. It was huge. And I was doing these exams I needed to do. Very, very, very helpful. I wrote him two different thank you notes in the next week. And I said, brother, the second one, brother, I know I already sent you a thank you note. (laughs) This is the best gift I have received in a long time. You were so thoughtful. Thank you, thank you, thank you for sacrificing for me. You know what? The next time I saw him, he had a smile that was wrapped all the way around his head. And he was so grateful. He was honored. He was blessed. He was blessed. And you know what? When God gives you something good, it's okay to enjoy it. It's not materialism necessarily, unless you're putting your hope in it. Materialism is this. Materialism says, life is found in the material things that I can acquire. But if you say of that thing, Lord, I'll give you an example. Uh, The neighbor across the street from this church doesn't live here anymore. Uh, Me and the former pastor helped him with his marriage. He was so grateful uh, that when his wife eventually did divorce him, okay, that was ironic, um, he came to me and he says, hey, I have this extra car, it's a really nice car, and I was gonna, just going to put it on the market, but I remembered your kindness to me, and I wondered if you would, uh, I'll sell it to you at a really great price, and it was, and I went to two banks, and they said, you got to buy that car. It was a Toyota XLE, not a Toyota XL, but a Toyota XLE. It had all the leather, had, leather had the the uh, sound system in it and everything, and I just couldn't believe it. I was driving around this little Toyota that I had had for 13 years. I mean, uh, a little Subaru that I had had for 13 years. And, um, and I remember I'd get in that car after I bought it, and I'd be driving around listening to classical music or worship music, and I would say, God, <laughs> thank you for this car. God, I, it is a gift from your hand. I never expected this. It is so wonderful. I just, I really like it. I love this car. For your glory and my own joy, I love this car. And you know what? You can take it back whenever you want it. And one day, my son called me and he said, uh, Dad, I need, I need to borrow your car. He was in college. And so I loaned him my car. And I was saying, Lord, thanks for the use of my car. Anytime you want it, you can take it back. And he went to Union University Do you remember that year that the big tornado came through? (laughs) And my car disappeared momentarily. And my son called me and he said, Dad, we don't have to worry about getting the alternator fixed. And I said, why? And he said, because uh, it's upside down and there's a pickup truck on top of it. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And you know what? He gave me another one. Just, you know, he meets your needs. He takes care of you. God gives you good things. You have a good home, you got to, if you have a house, praise God for the house. Enjoy that house. If you've, if, you know, you have children, enjoy those children. You just plug in any material thing that you have, any living or material thing you have. God gave it for your enjoyment. Don't feel bad about that. Just praise God for it. Give him the glory. Thank him. Thank him repeatedly. Not because you're earning anything from him, but just because you're blown away by how kind he is to you. And you will receive glory. He will receive glory from that. The point here is not that 
Um, it's not that money provides you with the best things in life. It's that God provides you with the best things in life. The scripture repeatedly teaches us that it is God who gives you the power to get wealth. Deuteronomy 8.18, Paul's saying, put your hope in the giver, not in the gift. Delight in the giver. And the primary mark of a Christian is that he has set his hope not on things below, but on God. In chapter 4, verse 10, same letter, For to this end we toil and strive, because we have set our hope on God, who is the Savior of all people. Chapter 5, verse 5, A widow who is worthy to be put on the list for financial support in the local church is one who is left all alone and has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day, which is evidence that she has set her hope on God. Since God is the giver of all that we have, he alone controls everything that we have or don't have, Since he has given them to us, we can enjoy them. Just enjoy them for his glory, and you do that by enjoying them unselfishly. Unselfishly. We can take pleasure in them. God is glorified when we enjoy them, as long as we're enjoying them in a selfless manner. This reflects on Solomon's statement in Ecclesiastes where he declared that to eat and drink and make one's soul enjoyment, make one's soul enjoy good in his labor, this is from the hand of God. You're, you're, it's intended for you to enjoy it. So enjoy it. This reflects um, many passages, but and then Paul tells us how to enjoy his gifts in a manner that glorifies God. He says in verse 18, they are to do good, they are to do good and to be rich in good works. Paul wants believers to imitate God by doing good deeds rather than enjoying a, 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 the reputation of having much money. I mean, is that, is that what you live for? Having much money, having many possessions? Rather, one should cultivate a reputation for being rich in good works. Doing things for the glory of God. Doing things for the joy of other people. Paul wants believers to imitate God by doing good deeds rather than enjoying the gifts and keeping them to yourself. To many Christians, too many Christians, want to be known for the stuff that they've communicated. I'm sorry, accumulated, not communicated. Accumulated. But all of that stuff, including your money, listen, All of that stuff, including your money, won't amount to a dog's breakfast one moment after you leave this life. What we should be concerned about is serving other people. Good works are about using our time and our God-giving resources to make make sure others are cared for and loved. That's what doing good works is all about. And isn't that what Paul says in Ephesians 2 when he's talking about salvation? By grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. And then he says in verse 10, for you are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works. God saved you, not by good works, but he saved you for good works so that you would do things that glorify him. 
And then he says, so let your light so shine before men, Jesus says, that they may see your, what? Good works and glorify your heavenly Father, your Father who is in heaven. So by all means, enjoy what God has given. But make sure part of the enjoyment involves doing good things for other people. And how do you do that? You do that by, verse 18, being generous and ready to share. It's interesting to note here that the word ready to share is koinoikos, which is, which is a similar word to one that you already know, koinonia, which means what? Fellowship. And not just fellowship, but community. Okay, again, the word here is ready to share. It's one word in the Greek. Ready to share. Koinonia. Community. Fellowship. You see, it's one thing to write a check or give a gift. It's quite another to write a check or give a gift in a way that communicates personal love and care to the one to whom you give it. As Gabeline suggests, God is looking not only for a generous hand, but a kind and loving heart as well. You know why? Because even generosity is a matter of the heart, not a matter of how much you spent. Paul said that the Macedonians gave themselves first, 2 Corinthians 8. It's easier to give money than to give ourselves, but love requires sometimes that we give both. And always that we give of ourselves, even when we don't have the money. The author of Hebrews echoes Paul's words when he writes in Hebrews 13, 16, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So enjoy what God has given you, but share what God has given you. Yes, money is a means for your enjoyment, but it's also meant for ministry. In fact, you'll find that your resources are more enjoyable when you use them in the service of other people. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Proverbs 19.17 says, He who is generous to the poor, listen to this, I love this verse. He who is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. And the implication is there, the inference here is with interest. If you're lending to someone, you're, you're going to lend at interest. He who, who gives to the poor lends to the Lord. It's not you lend to the Lord. It's you give. I'm sorry. It's not that you lend to the poor. You give to the poor, but in doing so, the Lord says, we'll just count that as a loan to me, and I will repay you. I think that's a beautiful verse. So be careful of the danger of pride and don't set your hope on riches. Rather, enjoy what God gives you and every chance you get, use it to minister and love others. And by doing so, verse 19, you will lay up a good foundation for the future so that you take hold of that which is truly life. And by that, I think Paul simply means that living like this demonstrates that you have true life. Living like this has no explanation unless you have true life. You're not going to live like this as a lifestyle. Oh, you might do something like that to impress someone. 
But I mean, from the heart, you're giving, you're thinking like that. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. It's evidence that you have real life. You have life indeed. I think Paul simply means, this is evidence that you have eternal life. That's where life will be truly life is in his presence. So there you have it. Two dangers, two duties. And the question is, and I wanted you to to leave with this question, although I'm not done yet, so don't pick up. Uh, I, I wrote this on the bottom of your notes. What are you doing with your wealth? The real challenge of money is not to have it, but not be, is to have it, but not be held by it. At the end of the day, we will be forced to say, what I kept, I lost. And what I gave, I kept. What are you doing with your money? What would God have you do? And what will you do now that you know? And we pray God change us. Don't pray God change us unless you're willing to answer questions like this. Okay, but we're not quite done, and I have a little more time. That brings us to our last point, and this will be brief. Number two, the final exhortation, verses 20 and 21. Just listen to these words. Oh, Timothy. His final words in his first letter. Oh, Timothy. Guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved away from the faith. The thing that we should treasure most in this life is not our wealth, but God's truth, and particularly God's gospel. He's entrusted it to Timothy. He told Timothy, Paul did, go to Ephesus. I got a really hard assignment for you. There are false teachers there. You're going to have to deal with it. You're going to have to bring God's word to bear. You're going to have to rebuke, and you're going to have to, um, you're going to, have to settle issues. You're going to have to stand up. You're going to have to be the man. And you're younger, it's going to be hard. And you're timid, and it's going to be hard. But you've been given a charge. And God has put within your, your heart the truth of the living God. Now take it and wield it for his glory and the good of your people. The false teachers will do everything in their power to derail you from what really matters. They will want you to join them in engaging in irreverent babble. The word babble here means empty talk and contradictions that are falsely called knowledge. And there's so much empty talk, so much empty talk. People, people ask the strangest questions sometimes that have nothing to do with the essentials of Scripture. And one person come and ask me, you know, we, you see some of the miracles in the, back, in, in the Bible. Do you think there is such thing as wizards in the Bible? And I say, I have to go now. <laughs> <laughs> it's empty talk. It's empty talk. You're trying to figure out this, that, and the other, and how many horns, what does that mean for who, and what beast, and, and what ocean, and, and who's the woman, and... Look, a lot of that stuff is important, but some of it is just empty chatter. 
that he gets so wrapped up in trying to uncover the mysteries of God that you ignore the basics of true godliness. And Paul is telling Timothy, don't get mixed up in that. Don't get mixed up in that. You have been given a deposit. You have been given the truth. You have been given the gospel. And some of these people who will try to derail you have swerved away from the gospel into hell. Oh, Timothy, guard God's word. Guard his gospel. The word, oh, oh, Timothy here, this is the O of deep concern. This isn't, oh, this is, isn't, oh, this is, isn't, um, oh, no, this is at the end of saying all of these things. Oh, Timothy, do you realize what you have? Do you realize the assignment that God has given you? Oh, Timothy, you have been given this weight of glory. You have been given the truth that will change men's hearts and set them free. Oh, Timothy, don't let anyone despoil it. Don't let anyone distract you away from it. Oh, Timothy, I'm so concerned about you. I'm so concerned about this. I'm so concerned about God's church. This is weighty. This is material. This is heavy. This is glorious. Oh, Timothy. Why do we preach verse by verse? Why do we talk about sound doctrine? Why do we have... Why is Calvary Bible Church what it is today? It's because we have been given a sacred trust and the elders of this church know it. We've been given a sacred trust and we are resolved never to swerve from the clear teaching of God's word. And primarily this means we hold unswervingly to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, I dare say, most evangelical Christians, if pressed, could not tell you what the true gospel is, even in good churches. And I suspect that might be the case even in our church, that many, if pressed, could not explain the gospel. It's not about finding a sense of purpose in life. It's not about discovering the way to be happy and fulfilled. It's not about making life work, whatever that may mean to you. No, the gospel is none of that. What is the gospel? Here's the gospel in a nutshell. The gospel is about a holy God who created a people who became unholy. Unholy. A holy God now with unholy people who deserve eternal wrath and condemnation for their sin, and they will get it if he does nothing. But because of God's great love and his infinite mercy, he sent his son to do the only thing that could be done to save sinful people like me. He humbled himself. He set aside his rights and privileges of being God and became a human being. He lived 33 years to fulfill all righteousness because what we needed was righteousness. There's a righteousness we desperately need, we don't have, we can't earn it. 
Therefore, Jesus came to live perfect righteousness so that we can be reconciled to God. And then he submitted himself to the full fury of God's curse, which was for me. Curse upon sinners, which I deserved. But he bore the wrath. He drank the cup of God's wrath in your place so that all your sins could be washed away. And then he died. He was put in the tomb for three days, and then he rose victoriously, just as he said. This, beloved, is the gospel. This is the good news. It is the message that God has paid for all of your sin in Jesus Christ so that you can be reconciled to God. This is God's only hope to sinners. It's the only thing he offers. It's the only thing that he leads out, gives out to, to you if you will have it. He's not here to fill your bank account. He is here to rescue you from the dead of sin. And the elders of this church, I would say, are dead set on protecting that. You wonder why we never got on board with the emergent church. You wonder why we never got on board with open theism. You wonder why we never became seeker-sensitive when that was going through. You wonder why we never adopted Jesus plus nothing equals everything. It's because we have been given a deposit the truth of God's word. And we resolved, we resolved at the very beginning of our ministry that we would guard it. Beloved, these are the most precious things in the universe. These are the most precious things in the universe. And so there we have it. In God's family, people honor the Father by genuinely, generously giving as proof of their real treasure in heaven. And they do everything in their power to grow in a knowledge of the gospel and of God's word that we might glorify him. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, you now have heard the gospel, God's invitation to you. And I pray and have prayed and will pray that you will receive it by faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time together and thank you for this wonderful book that has taught us so much about how to live in the household of God. And Lord, we pray that you would apply it to our hearts and give us the grace to bring it to bear on our behavior, but more importantly, on our thinking and our desires and our worship. And may you change us from the inside out and make Calvary Bible Church stronger because we're deeper in your truth. May all of these truths, may all of these truths produce love for Christ and love for one another. May they not, on the other hand, produce pride in us. Protect us from pride, O oh Father, and fill us with your grace and your mercy and your kindness. All of it for the sake of our Dear Savior, Jesus Christ, in his glory, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.